You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by the Breeders' Cup. Good morning. Welcome to the show. It's Friday, February the 3rd. Action-packed show for you today, coming to you once again from Bahrain, where I'll be presenting the Crown Prince's Cup for the Bahrain Turf Club a little bit later on. That'll be available to see on Racing TV, and you'll be hearing plenty more about that a little bit later in the programme. From trainer George Baker, who's got good chances here today, and from sponsor David Howden, who's expanding his portfolio into this region. But of course, of course, all eyes will be on the Dublin Racing Festival in the lead-up to this weekend and over the weekend, which contains eight, eight, count them, grade one races some of the very best national hunt stock in ireland taking one another on of course we're expecting it to be a willie mullins fest but the nuances are much finer than that as i'm sure will be explained by the racing posts jonathan harding who joins me now jonathan what for you are the three or four key headlines that are likely to come out of the of the dublin racing festival at leopardstown saturday and sunday the biggest headline from a horse perspective is going to be how does Gallopin Deschamps get on in the Irish Gold Cup? Obviously, he's been sort of the constant in the Cheltenham Gold Cup market. He's been the one that's sort of been steady at the top of the market while the others have moved about after the Cotswold Chase, after various different races. So he's an odds-on favourite for the Irish Gold Cup on Saturday, quite rightly. And, you know, it'd be interesting to see whether he can take a big step forward. But it's not a penalty kick by any means, Um we had Patrick Mullen saying he's looking forward to Statler National Hunt Chase when are serving it up to him. So that will be really illuminating test there. I think the second headline really is, in a broader sense, the support of this meeting. The trainers have said they were going to get behind it and they absolutely have. It, it feels almost of Cheltenham Festival quality. And Willie Mullins is the man who's probably by virtue of having so many of these good horses is firing the most darts at it. It was 17 of the 32 runners in the four grade ones on Saturday are trained by him. So as you mentioned there, it's it wouldn't be no surprise if he walked away with multiple, multiple winners on both days, including in the Irish Arkle, where he has five of the eight runners, which is an extraordinary figure. And I believe a couple of them are unbeaten as well. Headlined by Appreciate It, who's Paul Townend's choice. I mean, his job doesn't get much easier, does it, having to choose between these top horses, Dysart Dynamo, Al Fabiolo, St. Roy, he's got a real decision to make there and he's gone with Appreciator, who's a, a fantastic horse. So, look, I think it's going to be one of those classically, it's going to be fantastic in its own right, good competitive racing, but it's also going to be incredibly illuminating looking ahead to the spring festivals. And I haven't even got into Sunday. So much to look forward to on Sunday, including high definition, taking on Fasal Vega, the high-class bumper horse versus the high-class flat horse. A lot to take out of the weekend, so get your notepads ready. All that, and you haven't even mentioned Honeysuckle against State Man and Vauban, but she's sure to get uh, plenty of mentions, and she, she has indeed had plenty during the course of this week on the podcast. You talked about high definition. I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that he's the horse I'm most looking forward to seeing. He might not be 
the best horse in time to come out of this meeting, but he is certainly the best flat horse to go hurdling for an awful long time. And he won on his hurdles debut. And you'll be hearing plenty more from him in a few moments from Joseph O'Brien. But I began my conversation with Joseph by talking about a horse who I thought was rather the unsung hero of the Dublin Racing Festival, which has only been in existence since 2018, because he's won each of the last three incarnations of it. A couple of different races, three different jockeys. He's going for a fourth. He's still only seven. He's called a wave of the sea. And I began, before asking him about the grade one horses, uh, by asking Joseph O'Brien you know, whether he was one of those horses that you just become incredibly fond of. Yeah, very much so. Um, Nick, he, he's won a uh, number of races on the flat. Um, hers, Chase's, um, he always runs his race. He's run very well in races from, you know, from two miles right up to, to three miles in some of the nationals during the summer. And he's a real favourite around the yard. And we're very lucky to have him. And, you know, we're hopeful that he can run well again this weekend. I mean, already won at three of these festivals. He's still only seven years old, and it's it's not often when they're that when they're as precocious as him that they they keep going. What's his What's his secret? He's just a, a, a very consistent horse. Touch but he's a very sound horse, and um, I mean, he's he's never really had much of a holiday. He always tends to run through the winter and run through the summer, um, and he's been doing that since he was running in juvenile hurls and on the flat. So, so um, uh, yeah, I wouldn't mind having a, a yard full of horses like him. That's for sure. Okay, so as I say, he won that that juvenile hurdle. He's won a couple of chases there as well. Um, you've got a couple of options for him this weekend. You plumped for the Saturday, is that right? The the the, the fan zone handicap chase rather than the Sunday. Yeah, that, that's actually the race that he won last year. I think that he should run run a very good race in it again. And we, I felt that on paper that that the Saturday race was maybe a little bit weaker than the Sunday race, you know. So so I've discussed it with Frank and JP. That was the race that that uh, was was decided. Yeah, to, to be quite honest, Nick, I, I I don't know what his best trip is because he's performed very well and pretty similar similar levels, you know, from like you say, from two miles up to three miles. So I'd be lying if I told you I thought one was better than the other. He, he ran a huge race to be placed in a national uh, last year in in Limerick, um, um, over three miles, and then came came back and and obviously won the two mile chase in Leperstown. So I think he's a very versatile horse. Uh, as long as the ground is not too heavy, he tends to run his race. The other angle is the jockeys. It started with Barry Garrity, then it was Simon Torrance, then it was Shane Fitzgerald, and now it's now it's Aidan Kelly. Um, tell me a little bit more about about Aidan and and your association. Yeah, um, I'm actually not sure if Aidan has, has rode for us before. Um, he rides a, a quite a few of uh, JP's horses and and uh, is a claimer who's going going places um, uh, in Ireland at the moment. Um, uh, as you know, there's quite a few of them, but he's he's certainly a, a rider who's been catching the eye, and we're very lucky to have him, and he's very good value for his claim. Yeah, so leaving leaving nothing to chance. Obviously, a lot of focus will be on the Grade One horses as well that you're you're running banbridge i know has had this race the the irish arkle marked down as uh, as his target for, for for quite a long time you obviously still believe that he is a he is a two miler through and through are you hoping that the better ground is going to bring out bring about his best 
Yeah, absolutely, Nick. You know, um, um, you know, after we we ran the last day, um, we discussed it with with, with JJ and, and Ronnie. It was, you know, we were all on the same page, and that you know, soft ground is is, is not his thing, and um, um, uh, so he'll he'll be kept on nicest ground from from here on forward. Um, this looks like uh, an outstanding novice chase, uh, which is great to see, and uh, we're excited to be part of it, and we're excited to have a live chance in it. Uh, I'm certainly excited, as are many people, about seeing High Definition out again. Uh, his form's taken a, a little bit of a boost with Jatara's good run behind Ashro Diamond. Uh, what are you expecting at the weekend? Yeah, well, well, obviously, Nick, we're hoping to run very well. Um, that's what we're there for. There's no doubt that, that Fasel Vega is going to be a, a, a tough nut to crack. He's just about one of the most exciting um uh, novices in training at the moment in, in, in the UK or Ireland so so but but he's there to be shot at and we're going to give it give it our best shot and is there an edge that you think you might have is there something that you might have in your in your armory that that he doesn't I mean we know what a very very good flat horse you were yeah, well, I was going to say, I, I, listen, I don't know if he could, you know, be 118 or 117 rated flat horse. He probably could, but 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 you know, um, our horse obviously has has a lot of class. Uh, he jumped well uh, in the second half of his race uh, uh, in his maiden, and he'll have to brush up and be sharper through the first half of his race. You know, this weekend we've been pleased with his schooling. He actually had his last schooling session this morning, which went very well. And um, I mean, um, if you're not in, you can't win and someone has to take on these good horses and we're lucky and 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 excited to have a horse that that we can you know throw throw a throw a dart at it and see see how he goes but we're hoping for a good run and from there then i mean fast and vegas looked at top top horse so so um our, our expectations are realistic but we hope to give him a fright at least and one final question to what extent would your confidence in high definition be bolstered by the fact that that JJ Slevin was was content and confident to take him to the front on his first hurdles run, and he was able to he was able to draw away doing it from the front on his debut. Does that does that give you extra confidence? Yeah, it does. And I mean, it's never ideal having to go and do that on your on your first run uh, over hurdles. So 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 like he was entitled to have a good look and be a little bit leery. And uh, considering he had, had however many runs on the flat and had never seen a hurl um, in a racing environment, you know, so he was entitled to be a little bit sticky. But I was personally, I was very pleased with how he warmed into the race, and and I was very pleased with how he jumped the last four hurls. It was a pity that the last hurl was um, was 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 dulled off on the day with the low sun because that would have been you know a, a great experience for him but but I was very pleased with his last you know the last mile of the race and um, I mean he I, I think he's earned a spot in this race all right Joseph O'Brien there and I detected Jonathan there I mean bullishness would be overstating it because he doesn't really do bullish but I detected real confidence in high definition and when I said what's he got that Fasal Vega hasn't he said you know not sure not sure Fasal Vega could have could have could have run in group one company and got to a rating of 117 and it's a it's a very fair point if he if he steps forward again this could be an absolute humdinger couldn't it yeah it really could it really could and as i mentioned before is that it's whether you prefer the bumper form of facile vega to the flat form of high definition i think he's he's right and he's in his fairly understated way i think it was it was quite bullish of him to point that out because his flat form is absolutely exceptional i mean if you have a look through the sort of names and the, the quality of the horses he's running up against, Alan Kerr, certain Baid, Hurricane Lane. So he is a very good horse, full stop. 
and he showed at Leopardstown that he is also a very good horse over hurdles. I think perhaps his price has a lot to do with potentially his sort of his potential, I think, because he he hasn't shown as much as Vassal Vega, which is why he's not favourite. But you just have that feeling that if he step, takes a big step forward again, he, he can really serve it up to Vassal Vega. But that's no disrespect to the favourite. I mean, he's in, he hasn't put a foot wrong at all over hurdles himself. So two very, very good horses. And that Willie Mullins dominance likely over the next couple of days almost makes, almost kids you for half a second into thinking of Joseph O'Brien as something of an underdog. And then you slap yourself around the face and realise what you've just said. A man who really is one of racing's underdogs, but had a, a glorious day yesterday is British trainer William DeBest Turner, based in, in Wiltshire. He is somebody who has not had a winner since 2006, a winner of, of any description. And I can't, I can't find a, an official winner under rules jumps-wise. But yesterday, 50-1, to 1, Calgary Tiger, after two years off the track, and I think back to early odds of, of 150, um, scored in fine style at Wincanton. And I caught up with the trainer as he was celebrating in the bar at Wincanton just afterwards. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I bred him as well. And I've uh, I've always had faith in Norris. It's just he's had his problems. And we've we, we've had... It took a couple of years to get him back after his run in the Kingwell, you know. So he ran well enough in that, but I thought he was better than that. And we've just persevered and kept on with him. And you've never been frightened of throwing one into a nice race or at a, at a decent track. Take anybody on in any race. They've got to jump. And and this horse, you obviously have always thought was of above average ability. Tell me a little bit about the story of his of his breeding then. Well, he's by Tiger Groomer of a mare I had. She was a nice jumper, but um, when he started, he was always big, going to be. He was always a big lad. He was always going to be a jumper anyway. And I took him off to Henrietta Knight, and she said he's going to be a chaser. And that's it. So I had to go with what Henrietta says. And we've we've kept on, persevered with him, got him chasing. And he's finally, this is his first chase, so which is good. It, it, it's more than good. And you know, you're, you're a familiar name on, on race cards, but you, you only have a, a, the odd horse, a handful of horses. Six horses at the moment, so. Yeah. And, and when, when was the last winner under rules? Oh, God, that's a few years ago. <laughs> it's, a while, it's, a, it's a while. With the ups and downs and ins and outs, swapping yards, you know, either going to give up or not. So I ended up with just four horses of my own. So I was going to give up. And, uh, I got some uh, people talk me into carrying on. So I thought, I'll carry on, get this horse to a track and see how we go. Instead of having four horses, I've got six and two people want to put another horse. So I'm looking up. What made you carry on? What made you persist? Um, this horse made me carry on. I I got him back to right. I rode him. I schooled him. I done everything with him. And then I thought, I've got to get a jockey to sit on him because I'm not going to ride him in a race. And they were all raving about him. So I said, well, we've got to take the shot and have a crack with him. So it took a while, but we got there. Um, and the obvious question is 150 to 1. I really hope the answer is yes. Did you back him? Uh, I had a couple of pounds on him, not a lot. I just thought, you know, have my fibre on just for the day. If he gets beat, he gets beat. That's it. Life is a sure. And so I'm happy. I'm even happy in there now, so that's good. Well, <laughs> you should be. And, and when, when are we likely to see him again? Well, we'll take him home, see how he comes out of this. He's, he's, he, we, we think he needed the run anyway, because he did get tired at the end. But like I said, we think he's a very good horse, so... And I'm not the only one. Like I said, Henrietta thinks he's a very nice horse too. So 
We're having a good day. Ah, oh, brilliant. I'm delighted for you. Thanks so much for talking to me. I'll let you continue the celebrations. Yeah, so it's onwards and upwards, hopefully. Calgary Tiger, who was available at 150 to 1 in the morning, went off 50 to 1. Probably the shortest price horse that William DeBest Turner's run for a while, but a, a heartwarming story from Willie to William, Jonathan, in one in one fell swoop. Yeah, um, it's patience personified, really, and, and fair play for sticking out at it. He obviously loves what he does still, which is the most important thing. 17-year uh, wait for a winner with a horse returning from a 712 day absence as a reporter, you just absolutely love those kind of details because it's a, these stories don't come along very often and an absolute extreme to Willie Mullins. Yes, but we need people at both ends of the game. And um, I thought he spoke really well there about, about his sort of love for it. And it would have meant an awful lot. And I, I was watching it yesterday and Ben French Davis stood up in his eye and celebrated. I think that was, one that would have meant an awful lot to his yard and team. So congratulations to them. Yeah, well done to the uh, quadruple barrel partnership of William de Best Turner and Ben <laughs> French Davis at Wing Canton yesterday. If that puts a smile on your face as a reporter, I don't want, want to know what the expression is when you have to write up another story about the BHA's uh, bedding in period for the whip, which we've talked about fairly extensively this week. But it's taken another little interesting turn, Jonathan. What happened overnight? Yeah, so I've been following the, the various twists and turns of this from idea to uh, consultations of proposals to mutiny to reconsidering. And it took, as you say, another little twist with the BHA releasing a almost a sort of holding statement to say it wouldn't be releasing the, the data that it has or it promised to release in the interest of transparency of the number of rides and the number of jockeys that would have fallen foul of those new whip rules during the bedding in period which has already been extended they, the rules come into full force on February 13th as it stands last night they replaced that with a short statement to say that they're just going to work with race day stewards and the whip review committee to reassess how those rules are going to be uh, applied after jockeys have voiced a fair bit of concern about which rides were likely to be in breach of the new rules Harry Cobden on Il Rodoto at the weekend there was that sort of back and forth where it was suggested and then refuted by the BHA that jockeys were being told the length of their ban sort of ahead of time. So mm. they're just taking a bit of a pull on it and talking to stewards about how these rules are being applied. But crucially, they don't actually, it's not the rules that are in question here, just their application. Um, they're not backtracking on that. They're not adjusting those. It's just a case of, perhaps cooling off for a moment and continuing that dialogue with the Professional Jockeys Association. But it's another it's another step, or non-step, if you will. And it's just for, for a project that its sort of sole purpose, really, well, not sole purpose, but a big part of it was the optics of the whip. And I think it was fantastically well-intentioned and still is. And I think the jockeys, at least at first, certainly took it in the right spirit. But at the moment, I'm not sure who really looks good out of this and uh, and I knew it was never going to be an easy process so fair play to the BHA for sort of not pushing ahead blindly and actually being open to dialogue but it's difficult to see how this one ends up and it's one to follow in the coming days because it, as it stands if we're heading into the spring festivals with a series of high profile jockeys getting high profile bands it, it, that's an even worse look for me than anything that could come from the whip but we shall see yeah i mean i concur with that point of view i i 
I will reiterate what I said yesterday, which is that no party wants to see the long bans. Uh, and there has to be some clear or or more uh, considered definition of what above shoulder height is in order to proceed with this as far as i can as far as i can tell but i think also clearer briefing to the the, the race day stewards at the moment as to what their responsibilities actually are and that's something that, that the bha are clearly trying to do um a good news about altior who we reported earlier uh, last week with nikki henderson had suffered a very serious bout of colic he's on the mend yeah absolutely that was great news to receive last night um He's sort of over his, well, not over because it's, a, it's always a long road back to full strength, but he appears to be out of the woods from colic. And it's, I don't know what it is about uh, a horse like Altior. Well, I do. He's just, he built up such a following and I've always had a bit of a sort of soft spot for him myself. And I'm slightly going to age myself here, but my career covering horse racing has sort of tallied with his really when I first started writing about the sport, which isn't that long ago. 2018 he was he was the man and he was the horse that really my first sort of big reports around him and he's been such a fantastic servant for Nicky Henderson and I think for racing's appeal certainly over jumps he was sort of our flag bearer for a long time all right what can you tell me Jonathan about the levy report of 2021 to 2022 which came out yesterday this is the the annual report uh produced by the horse race betting levy board which is if you've just joined this podcast, the organisation that collects money from the bookmakers as mandated by the government and then distributes it uh, to British horse racing. So clearly the, the the figure and the yield is very important. What did 21 to 22 tell us? Well, it was a case of good and bad news, really, Nick. The, the levy yield for 2021-2022 came to 97.6 million, which is a huge increase on last year's figure of 82 million when obviously no racing took place for 10 weeks due to COVID, so naturally you'd have expect an increase. The 2019-2020 yield was, which we were sort of branding a normal-ish year, uh, was 98 million. So it's it's about where it ought to be. So that's that's the good news for all the doom and gloom. The yield was reasonably resilient. But as you've covered on the pod, as we've covered in the newspaper, there are, and I hate to use this businessy phrase of headwinds, but there are a lot of things coming down the line, not least the gambling review and the uncertainty around things like affordability checks and one would imagine that is likely to sort of leave a dent in it uh when we get this similar document mm. next year those those um, headwinds are not zephyrs are they they're they're hurricanes absolutely right yeah and that can't be understated and we've seen the impact affordability checks are already having on digital turnover on horse racing um martin credis has spoken to that before to the tune of tens of millions if not hundreds of millions so it's an it's a difficult time but this was encouraging news at least for 2021 to 2022 well you might think that everybody's made up their mind at this time of the year what stallion their mayor is going to visit but I think increasingly as time goes on, that's not necessarily the case. And there's all sorts of choice out there. And particularly when you're looking at stallions who've only just stood at stud. And we focused quite a bit last year on on perfect power and his retirement and, and spoke to, to Richard Brown, who's got such a close association, not just with him because he bought him, but also with his sire, Ardad, whom he bought as well and, and did so well with. And, and Richard joins me now. Now, you've got a, a really deep and, and I guess vested interest in how perfect power gets on at, at stud, Richard. Uh, 
how how's it all going so far? Yeah, um, I think it's going. I think it's going well, Nick. Um, I think it's been very well received. Um, they have done various open days up at Dali, and I think um, they tell me that there's been a lot of people up there and some very positive comments. Um, I I know certainly from the breeders that I act for, he's gone down very well, and I think I've booked eight mares so far and will almost certainly book a few more. Um, so yeah, I think the early response has been very positive. So when you look at a, a first season sire landscape and you as a breeder want to want to take a, a first season sire, what 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 are the what are the key boxes that you want to check? Well, I suppose, you know, probably most of the uh, most of the attributes that this horse has, you know, looks um, often precocity comes into it. Uh, obviously ability um, and if they had precocity the ability to train on and he he obviously you know he did all of those things uh, and won some pretty important races in the pattern both as a two-year-old and then obviously going on to win at, at Royal Ascot and obviously having won the Norfolk became one of those rare horses that's won two Royal Ascot races. Why is it that you know people will think, well, why are breeders more inclined to go for a, a side that's unproven rather than go for a horse who's had a had a few seasons and and had a bit of success? What's the attraction of a first season side? Do you think? Well, I think uh, racing, like all sports, is about dreaming, isn't it? And, you know, he he could be the next great. You know, he could be the next great stallion. Nobody knows. Um, you know, you can't you can't always pick where they're coming from. Uh, he's got a lot of the attributes that it takes to become a top stallion. And you might well be looking back in five years' time, thinking, "Goodness, I got to breed to uh, to you know three time Group One winner for fifteen thousand pounds, who's now standing at fifty thousand. And you know, it, it it's that. It's that dream that he could be anything. And do you think there's a? I'm not saying there's a bit of ego in it, but obviously every every breeder likes to back their own judgment, likes to likes to back their wits a little bit. Do you think there's that extra satisfaction of thinking, hmm, I've backed a winner here if it, if it goes well. Now some of these won't go so well, but if it does, that that's sort of extra feeling of satisfaction of having got in ahead of the game. Yeah, look, very much so. And, and, and I think when you're breeding to these horses, you know, certainly in year one, you are often rewarded in the sale ring. Now, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be rewarded um, on the race course. But of course, that's the case for even proven sires. But yeah, look, very much so. And it, it go if it goes right, not only will you perhaps have sold very well in a first crop, but if he does go on to be a you know, an Ardad, a Havana Gray, those sorts of horses, then you, you you might well be rewarded in two ways. And so if you have taken the gamble and it comes off, um, you, you really can be royally rewarded. You mentioned Ardad, of course, you were closely involved with him. He's going great guns again. And his own sire, Kodiak, this is a line that is now um, proving proving incredibly potent. It, it is. And I think that's one of the key attributes that's coming through. There was um, there was a good article in the um, in the TDN today on uh, Tally Ho Stud and, and their, all their success and how, you know, they were basically saying that most of Tally Ho had been built on the success of Kodiak. Um, and one of the key attributes that they were saying about him is that in the very early days, all the trainers were saying, you know, they eat, they sleep, they go do their work, they go to the races, they win. They're good-looking. They train on, and you know he's passed that to Ardad in, in terms of you know temperament and ability. Ardad's passed it on to his son, and it is becoming a pretty potent line. And of course, what Perfect Power did 
was actually win the group one and win the group one as a as a three-year-old as well so you know theoretically yeah look i mean and, and and also you know not to forget yeah look he went on and won the commonwealth cup he also won a greenham um you know it, it, impressively and of course we all sort of got sucked into going to the guineas where he didn't stay you know to come back and do what he did dropping back um dropping back two furlongs to go to Ascot and do pull, pull out that performance so it takes a pretty special horse to do that all right good to hear from richard brown there about perfect power beginning his stud career and while we're on that theme i will make no apology once again for reminding you and reminding everyone that on monday we will be posting a live auction site auctioning a nomination to Ardad and a nomination to Golden Horn. You've just been hearing quite a bit about Ardad, the sire of, of Perfect Power, and he's had a, a fantastic time of it at Stud. And uh, Golden Horn, who's now a dual-purpose stallion, but again is doing well under both codes. We've very kindly been donated nominations to both stallions, and all the money, all the proceeds from these uh, nominations will go to cystic fibrosis charities, charities very, very close to my heart because my youngest daughter is living with the, the condition. So I'm really hoping on Monday we can kick on and raise as much money as we possibly can with these two Stallion nominations to Ardad and Golden Horn. Now, um, continuing a bloodstock theme, Jonathan, uh, Tattersalls have been re-offering the horses that Sally al uh, hadn't paid for in due time. Um, and how are they getting on? Yeah, so this was some... Great reporting by David Milnes, our new market correspondent, who's found out that Godolphin have stepped in to purchase a Frankel Colt, but not just any Frankel Colt, the one that was sold for two million guineas, um, um, originally bought by Al Hamazi. So bred by Bjorn Nielsen, the, the Colt was, this was the most expensive of those 20 plus horses bought by Bloodstock agent Richard Knight on behalf of Al Hamazi as part of that £20 million spending spree across all the big sales houses before the defaulted payment. So it's good to keep tabs on where these sort of high-profile horses are going because he's £2 million guineas is not short, short change. And Charlie Appleby was the underbidder on the, on the, the Frankel Colt originally. So it's not all that surprising, but it's, it's very interesting to know that this story is moving on. And we also have the news that uh, four of those horses that were in the sales, including a half-sister to Batash and the Antarctic, who was sold for 1.8 million guineas to Al Hamazi, and a, kil- a Kingman cult have been sold to Bond Thoroughbred Limited and will be going into training with Brian Smart, while one of the four will be going into training with David O'Mara, a star-spangled banner cult out of Great Dane. Well, here in Bahrain, I'm joined by George Baker, who's been having a very fruitful campaign out here and has a couple of important runners uh, today. George, first of all, it might just be worth putting into context exactly what you have achieved prize money-wise relative to, to what you might normally expect. Uh, yeah, Nick, um, good, good to speak to you as ever. Um, yeah, we're delighted with the way things have gone over here this year. And last year, we brought a couple of horses over here. It was very much a learning curve. And the important thing about a learning curve, um, I have learned, is that you need to learn. And thankfully, we've we brought three horses over here who've all been competitive. And yeah, we've had a winner, two seconds, and two fifth places, and, and they've won nearly £70,000. So we, we'd struggle around in the UK to, um, 
for quite a long time at this time of year to win that sort of money. So thrilled with the way it's going. And we've got wonderful time over here. The owners have been looked after brilliantly. They've fully embraced the, the concept of have horse will travel. And we've got plenty of them over here and, um, and plenty more coming for the final series race in two weeks time. I mean, that's pretty good. Three horses of, of just reasonable ability level netting 70 grand in not long. And you, you're going to pick up a bit more prize money today. I'm pretty sure of that. I'm hoping it's with uh, my horse, my, my racehorse's horse, uh, Watcher, me and many, many others. Um, uh, what, what are the chances today? Being second a couple of times in Bahrain. Uh, delighted with him. He, I mean, he was second, obviously. Um, his, his only run over here was second. He ran a fantastic race that day. Um, Pat Cosgrave just reported he was a bit gassy through the um, the early part of the race, and, and maybe that just cost him at the end. But um, look, he's training really well, Nick. He's drawn on, on what I think is the right side, the far side. And yeah, really, really happy with him. Andrea Razzini rides. Pat is... Um, up and um, suspended this week up in Dubai, so he couldn't come down. So Andrea Razzini, a, f- a fabulous substitute, and I'm really, really happy with the horse. Um, obviously, these sprinters spend most of the year beating each other, but uh, if he can replicate his last run, you've, you've got to hope he'd he, he go very close. And Lucanda's in the Crown Prince Cup, which is one of the most historic and prestigious races here in, in Bahrain. Um, where, will, where will he figure, do you think? Uh, listen, it's a, it's a privilege to have a runner in the race, Nick, as you say. You know, the best horses in, in Bahrain and um, uh, Godolphin sending down a, a Warren Point from Dubai. Um, massively competitive. Lukander obviously they bolted up on his first run over here. And, and when the race was, was run to suit, last time he, he finished fifth. It wasn't um, it wasn't as disappointing as I, I as I thought it was at at, at, at um, first glance, you know, because he he was too keen, the pace was too slow. If we have a proper pace to aim at tomorrow, which looks very likely, uh, hopefully he can bounce back to the form that saw him um, win so impressively in the first turf series. Week. But look, both horses in in great form, hugely competitive racing, but we're running around for decent prize money, and that's what you expect. And uh, as I say, owners have fully embraced it, and we're we're thrilled and delighted to be. Of it. Good luck, George. Bless you, Nick. Well, if you are a lover of horse racing internationally, or indeed of any equestrian sport, you'll have become familiar with the name Howden because the global insurance firm has lent its support to, to so many events, ranging from Ascot to being the real driving force behind the re-establishment of Cornbury Horse Trials. I'm joined by uh, the founder, David Howden, now, who's out here in Bahrain. And today, Howden are supporting the Crown Prince's Cup, one of the three most prestigious races here in Bahrain. David, first of all, what's brought you out here? What's, uh, what's brought the sponsorship portfolio to this part of the world? Yeah, well, uh, good morning, Nick. Well, well, actually, as you know, this is actually our our second year uh, of sponsorship in Bahrain, uh, sponsoring the uh, prestigious Crown Princes Cup. Um, and after we came um, last year, and you know, a it was a great success. We actually made the decision absolutely to establish uh, our business out here. So, in fact, we are literally next week going to be announcing that we're, we've. Uh, received our licenses and we'll be opening operations here in Bahrain and you know I have to say looking at it from a business perspective I find a country not only with huge opportunity and huge in energy but also very nice warm open country uh, very very positive about bringing investment in and we're really excited about our business opportunity here. 
from a race perspective, I think it's great to be supporting them. I, I think, you know, as I say, um, they're attracting now a lot of international horses and horsemen to the kingdom. And I think it's fantastic what His Royal Highness the Crown Prince and the, the Bahrain Tove Club are doing. And, of course, as you've sort of mentioned, we're passionate about racing both as a business and as an individual. So we're really keen to be supporting them. But you're also seeing the benefit that racing can bestow on, on, on your company. You've also seen how events can grow. As I said, you, you, know, you developed a, a horse trials extremely successfully yourself. Do you believe from what you've seen that, that racing in this kingdom can, can grow and, and compete with some of the best in the world? Well, yeah, Nick, as you said, you know, Howden has, has a very large uh, and fast-growing bloodstock division. And uh, we see that there's a huge uh, connection between, you know, in a way, all types of rides, like racing, horse trials, uh, show jumping, uh, 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 and, you know, the passion that people have for that, I think, can help, you know, as you're growing a business to actually get to know a country and the people in the country well. I think that's absolutely the case, you know, in this region and in, in, in Bahrain. In, in particular, I think there's a, there's a good linkage and we're, we're very happy that we, we we are able to do business and also have a lot of fun with a lot of lovely people at the same time. Oh, one final question, David. I mean, it won't have escaped you that we spend a lot of time in British horse racing, gazing at our navel and saying how terrible everything is and wondering where we're going to get the next financial support from. I, from a sponsor's point of view and someone who's a, a huge enthusiast for the, for the sport, are you are you quite happy with the portfolio that you've got? Are you are you committed to to supporting racing in Britain for some time? Well, look, we, we were very very happy with our our partnership with with Ascot. Um, you know, it, it's entering it, its third year this year, um, and we've really you know seen, seen it as a proper partnership. And and I, I think both from a perspective of the business, of course, which is critical, it's been highly successful. Indeed, many people in my business who perhaps didn't understand what it might bring to us have been really pleased by that. So absolutely, we're very com committed to that uh, with Ascot. And I think generally, you know, we, we obviously, as I said, have got a big bloodstock division, a big commitment to racing in, in general and, and beyond in, in the horse world. And so we're keen as a business to support support the industry. I do think you're right that obviously, you know, we can look like as any business, as a UK business ourselves, we, we like to, to learn from overseas as much as, you know, try and bring some of our knowledge overseas. And I think looking around what's going on in the international world, some of that could benefit us in the UK, definitely. David, thanks so much for your time. Enjoy your day. All right. Thanks, Dick. Bye-bye. Well, it won't be long now until the names go on the ballot, both human and equine, for the US Horse Racing Hall of Fame. Hugely coveted, hugely prestigious, and part of the beauty of it is the debate that it engenders about who should be in and who should still be left out. One man who has entered the debate this year is Hall of Fame jockey Chris McCarran. He entered the Hall of Fame in 1989. You may know him as the rider of Jewel Breeders' Cup Classic winner Tis Now, but he retired with more career earnings than any other jockey at the time in 2002. Chris has now taken to his own social media pages to make a case quite vociferously for two of his fellow riders who he feels have been unfairly overlooked. And Chris joins me now. Chris, just tell me a little bit more. Yeah, you're exactly right, Nick. I, I feel uh, very strongly that these two individuals, Corey Nakatani and Shane Sellers are, are, are two people who have uh, proven uh, with their success rate that they're worthy of uh, induction into our very prestigious Hall of Fame. Uh, they, they both, um, their, their criteria, their, their uh, success 
criteria quite uh, easily match those of other uh, Hall of Fame inductees, uh, people that are, you know, jockeys who are already in the Hall of Fame. And I, I did post that on my Facebook uh, solicitation there. And um, I'm just hopeful that my message will reach the ears of those who uh, are uh, tasked with the responsibility of being on the nominating committee and then eventually will go ahead and vote uh, on the ones that they feel, uh, you know, should should be inducted. Okay, so tell me why these two riders should be should be nominated. Now, Nakatani is the name that is has been on everyone's lips for years. I, would you would you agree with me that he's been the most contentious non-entrance to the Hall of Fame in the last decade and a half or so? I would think so. I don't know exactly how many times he's been nominated, but it's been quite a few. And there's a sort of a stigma attached to Corey's uh, reputation uh, due to an incident that occurred at Del Mar many years ago where after the race, he, he galloped up alongside another rider and actually pushed him off the horse. Uh, a, was, bit, bit, a bit like Kieran Fallon way back in the day. Yeah, a bit like that and a bit like, uh, who was it, Sumion who did it? Um, no, who was it, the, the jockey in France? Yeah, it? well, Chris, Christophe Sumion put his elbow out and, yeah. and Russell Ryan came yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. But, but but Fallon, when he was a very young jockey, actually pulled Stuart Webster off a horse at, at Beverly back in, you know, before he was famous, if you like. Wow, my goodness. Well, anyway, uh, yeah, he did it. You know, that was simply a, an angry reaction. That wasn't anything that was premeditated. Uh, Corey was very uh, remorseful for what he did. He followed the stewards' uh, uh, sanction by serving out his days and also attended uh, anger management uh, therapy, which uh, he felt to be very successful for, for himself. And... Um, but there's there's precedent here. Uh, back you can go all the way back to 1919, when a jockey by the name of Willie Knapp rode a horse called Upset, who handed Manowar his only loss in his whole career in the Sanford Stakes at Saratoga. Well, the stewards believed that the fix was in, and they they gave Willie Knapp life. The jockey club in New York. There was no racing commission at the time, so the jockey club was the governing body. And they ruled Willie Knapp off for life because they thought that somehow he was involved with uh, executing the defeat of the great man of war. Now, fast forward to sometime, I want to think in the late 40s or early 50s, uh, Eddie Arcaro was given life by the stewards in New York for pushing another jockey... Uh, actually running another jockey by the name of Vincent Nodars, N-O-R-D-A-R-S-E. He, Eddie uh, pushed him off into the rail and dropped him. And the next day in the review with the stewards, the steward said to Eddie, you know, if we didn't know better, we thought you were tr- really trying to drop that guy. He said, Judge, I wasn't trying to drop him. I was trying to kill him. He said that, and so uh, they they suspended him for for life. And what he ended up doing, though, he was um, he was riding pretty much everything for Green Tree Stable at the time. And Mrs. Whitney, who was one of the owners of Green Tree, after about a year or so, she appealed to the Jockey Club and got Eddie reinstated. Now, both of these gentlemen, the reason I bring them up is they're both in the Hall of Fame. So you know. I, I think what, what Corey was involved with is, uh, it's not excusable, but it's forgivable. 
And uh, I, I think that the the committee members who have the responsibility to vote should uh, should look past that and just look at surely at his record. And that's what I'm going by. I'm going by the record of both Shane and Corey, uh, knowing with the the uh, the records that I have compared them to, uh, they fit very well into the framework of a, a nominee for the Hall of Fame. Shane Sellers is a jockey that people now are beginning to forget but they shouldn't certainly when i first started going to the united states in the late 90s and early 2000s he was absolutely at the top of his game and was considered to be uh, uh you know on the verge of being an all-time great and that was against an extremely strong um group of jockeys yourself yourself included you rode against him what made him good well he was born to ride you know he he comes from the famous uh Cajun country where so many so many jockeys that, that turned out to be very successful race riders uh, emanated from and uh, you know he, he was born and raised in the same neighborhood as Randy Romero uh, Shane has even a better record than Randy does and Randy's in the Hall of Fame but uh, Shane started riding uh, match races when he was only 12 years old quarter mile match races in Erath Louisiana and uh, so he, he's been a horseman his whole life and uh, he, he was able to uh, subsequently bring those talents into the world of thoroughbred racing in a very successful way. And I, I just firmly believe he belongs to be inducted. And he had to retire prematurely as well. I mean, his career could have gone on 10, 15 years longer. That is correct. Yeah, he had to retire due to knee injuries. And, and uh, Corey as well. Corey had, uh, he had broken his neck. Uh, and uh, required surgery, and he was advised that he never should get back on another horse. Chris, you re- you retired, um, you know, in the in the in the early two thousands, two thousand two. You'd been in the Hall of Fame thirteen years at that point. Uh, you retired as the the all time leader in purse earnings. You rode against some truly truly extraordinary riders yourself. Um, who was the who was the best that you rode against? Uh, Lafitte, or I think it's a dead heat between Shu and, and Lafitte. Willie Shoemaker and Lafitte Pinkai. Yes. And and when when you're talking about the guys that you're you're wanting to nominate for the Hall of Fame, where do they where do they lie up amongst the greats that you rode against? Well, Corey demonstrated that he was uh, capable of not only competing successfully but beating the the, the jockeys. As I mentioned in my piece. Uh, there were 10 jockeys who he was riding against, and uh, he won nine riding titles in Southern California. So that's pretty strong evidence that he was able to uh, be an equal uh, on a level playing field there in Southern California. And what about Sellers? And Sellers, the same way. Well, he when, when he moved his tack from the Midwest to the East Coast, uh, he was riding against the likes of uh, Jerry Bailey, Johnny Velasquez, and, you know, uh, Edgar Prado and... Uh, so many other really top riders in New York, um, and he, you know, and he again, he, he did it very successfully. Chris, um, fingers crossed. You've made a very convincing case. Always good to talk to you, um, and uh, thanks so much for thanks so much for sparing your time. Hey, you're very welcome, Nick. It's great talking to you. Thank you for doing this. All right, Chris McCarran, there, Hall of Fame legend. Um, good luck to him with his quest to get Corey Nakatani and Shane Sellers to join him in the Hall of Fame. I'd, I'd say that might be the only podcast that features uh, Chris McCarran and William DeBest Turner. But but there we go. Jonathan Harding, what do you think? 
Yeah, I'd say so. I think variety is a spice of life, as they say. I don't know if that was you who said that originally, but um, yeah, Probably. I'd say it's fairly short, fairly short odds that that's the only time they'll be on there. Yeah, variety, the spice of life, but life gets considerably better if you can um, if you can make a few quid backing winners, and you can you can give us a, a winner for this afternoon. Well, I certainly hope so. My selection is Prairie Wolf in the one ten at Catterick. Went really close here last time over a mile and seven, stepping up markedly in trip, and I just think he might be a lot better than his current mark. I think it's the time to be with him. So that's Prairie Wolf in the one ten at Catterick. Right, I've got to get some work done now and then get on a plane tonight to head to Dublin. Can't wait for the Dublin Racing Festival and Bahrain in between time. Um, thanks so much for, for listening today. We'll be back with you on Monday morning. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, also known as Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.